Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Panel Presents with Scott Sickles, Dana Schwartz, Cole Hunter Zubek, Judy Klass. Hello there, and welcome to our last episode of The Panel Presents for this year. I hope you're very well wherever you're listening. As always, I'm your host, Rachel Feeney-Williams, reaching out from my corner of Devon in the UK with this monthly show dedicated to fabulous chat about theatre, with, of course, my four wonderful panellists, who I'll now introduce you to. My first panellist is a Los Angeles writer, director, producer and actress. As an actress, she's performed all around the world, and as a writer, she's won a multitude of awards and had works in published print. She's co-creator, writer and performer in the nine-episode Zoom series Isolation In, currently airing online. And if that wasn't enough, she is the co-creator and producer of Theatre at the Museum at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Taking all that into consideration, it's amazing she's found time to come and chat with us. Please welcome Dana Schwartz. Hi, everybody. My second panellist actually made his debut on Theatrical Shenanigans quite recently as a playwright of our Halloween piece, the Paranormal Club's 7th Annual Haunted House Sleepover, but that is only the beginning of his accomplishments. He's a Michigan-based playwright and actor who's been produced in six states, stars in the Fragile Minds series produced by Broken Arts Entertainment, and is the co-creator of Counterculture, and I'm thrilled to be introducing him once again. Welcome Cole Hunter-Zubach. Hello, happy to be here. My third panellist is also someone who's gained a connection to theatrical shenanigans quite recently as she will be a featured playwright in our third season in 2024. Outside of that, she's another very busy and talented woman with one play published by Next Stage Press and another by Samuel French, now known as Concord. She's also had 41 productions of her plays across the USA, in the UK, Canada and Ireland. When she's not busy writing amazing works that have won awards, she is also a teacher at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, as well as following her passion of songwriting. I am utterly in awe to have her here. Welcome, Judy Glass. Hey there. And last but certainly not least, we have a fourth US panellist. Originally from Pittsburgh, he has had productions of his plays performed all over the world for the last 30 years. He's also a winner of multiple awards, including five Writers Guild of America awards and 11 Emmy nominations for his work on the daytime serial General Hospital. His list of awards and achievements would literally put me out of breath to read them all, so you can understand that I am thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Scott Sickles. So glad to finally, finally be here. <laughs> okay, we move on to our first group question. Why is the theatre important in your mind? And we will start with Cole. Oh, that's a that's a big question to start to start to lead off. Um, I think theatre is important because I think it brings people together. But I think mm -hmm. um, deeper than that, it's something that I think everybody can find a home in. There's so many different facets of theatre that somebody can be involved in. So I think mm -hmm. everybody can and find a home there. So that's why I think it's important. There's not many other industries in my mind where you get to do that and start building community that way. So I just think, I think it's, that's the most important thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Judy. From a sort of selfish writer's point of view, I think writing for theater can make you a better writer in every other way. I mean, if I teach playwriting, screenwriting, my students think more like movies from the beginning because you just see more movies as you go through life. But we start with playwriting because I sort of say to them, that's where you learn to create three-dimensional characters. 
uh, you know, create relationships where there's sort of subtle changes and give and take and strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and that's where you develop an ear for dialogue and with movies where you're supposed to every page or so, or every two pages cut somewhere else, you're never going to be able to explore sort of characters and human relationships and, mm. and with, with that kind of depth and intensity. Scott? Theater, uh, I feel, is just so important because it is, um, it's very much a document of, of the time it was created, part of or, you know, oral history and oral storytelling, um, just from you know, the first people sitting around a campfire and, and getting up and acting something out, like what happened that day during the hunt, that's theater. You, know, mm. you have a story, you have an audience, you have performers. And, um, and, and in the writing of all that down, um, you know, we really get to see how people live, regardless of the genre, regardless of the time and the place of the play. You know, it, it's a reflection of the voice of the time uh, and the society that it was created. And I think that that is just so absolutely important. I, I just think that um, in, in, the, in the very grand scheme of things, um, we get really, really um, granular glimpses into what the world was like. Dana, assuming there's anything left, what about you? <laughs> there's nothing left. They stole all my stuff. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to, yes, and I would like to add that um, I think theater allows us to, to not just tell stories, but share stories, right? Mm. In a way that um, that other mediums don't quite hit right I love movies I love reading I love going to a museum something about the live audience aspect allows us to share stories and 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 see ourselves you know it's 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 an exciting way to see different things on stage and and what it does I think is it it unites us we can always sort of find a piece of ourselves in whatever the story is that's being shared continuing with Dana uh Andrew Scott recently said, when you've just seen a play, it's a really sensitive time. How easy or difficult do you think it is to become emotionally invested in a play, whether watching, directing, or performing? Uh, first of all, big Andrew Scott fan, um, <laughs> for so many reasons, not just Hot Priest. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's so incredibly True. And I think I would go one further and say that there are some things that you don't discuss. My father used to say there are things you don't discuss in polite society, mm. politics or religion or movies. That was his thing. It's like, you know, these are the things that people will fight. They will go to the mattresses about are their opinions on politics, religion and, and movies. And I, and I feel like theater's the same way. And we become emotionally invested, whether we like the play or we don't like the play mm. and I think that I think that all of that is valid I would rather have somebody come see something and 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 be just horrified and disgusted rather than just go eh, okay cool right you want to mm. you want to evoke emotion that's I think that's what we do at our core we want to allow people to have an outlet for their mm. opinion and their emotion and we get to be uh the mirrors for that so yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's very easy to become emotionally invested. I think you should. Mm. Well, you you took the one unique word out of my mouth though, which is there's nothing worse than the eh. Um, and it's always <laughs> yeah. that kind of same tone. It's, it happens with films. It happens with you know TV shows. Anything. He's like, what did you think of? And you just go eh. There's nothing worse yeah. for me. I was like, I you know I, I 
sounds really cheap cliche, but I'm very much like I think you have Marmite reactions. Either you love it or you hate it, and that's when you know it's affected you in some in some way. I agree with that. And I'll go you one further and say that as the older I get, um, the less I'm interested in being a part of a project that I feel ugh about. Mm. You know, there are some things I'm like, ugh, I have to go to work, ugh, I have to go to this meeting, ugh, I have to read this play. And I am trying really hard to not do that anymore. I want to be invested, love it or hate it. I want to be, I want to be hooked in. Yeah. And I started freshman year like five years ago and something that un upperclassmen would always tell like the new freshman class was like, do every opportunity, even if you don't want to. And like, there's always this like, um, this kind of pressure to like fill your plate with things as much as you yeah. could, even if it wasn't anything you're interested in. Um, so, you know, that's something that I've been trying to work out as well. I try to talk myself out of so much, but it's so hard because I feel like, you know, I'm like, what if this is the one opportunity that I mm. don't do, but it's the one that could have like yeah. given, given me something more that I want. It's scary to say no, but it's super empowering too, as an artist mm. to be able to say no. And I think that you have to develop that, that confidence. I think that that's mm -hmm. a huge part of of this, especially you know we we don't we don't make a lot of money we don't <laughs> get a lot of acclaim you know in the theater so to be <laughs> able to say no and and know that you can stand behind that that's that's it's a tricky thing so good for you. But I think just for further what folks are saying, um, there is the aspect of what if this is the opportunity, but I think it's also true sometimes you know it's not. And you can just say no, because you also don't want to like be tied down to this one awful, awful thing that you're doing for no money just to get the experience. And then you actually, you know, have to, you know, say no to a paying gig because you, you go up in a day and a half and you can't leave the, the production in the lurch. Uh, but I think just also with, um, with, with the emotional investment as an audience member, it is sort of its own mini marriage where you are, you are definitely committed and connected to these people for mm -hmm. however much time they are on stage. But also as a, getting invested as an audience, I find you get that a lot with revivals or uh, alternative productions of classics. And you think, you think walking in, I've seen Macbeth, I've seen... The Mousetrap, I've seen Death of a Salesman. What are you going to do to this play that I like? And am I going to love it or am I going to hate it? And there's a certain amount of real trust there that they are not going to ruin this play for certain audience <laughs> members who've either never seen it, and this is their first awful experience of it, or have seen it so many times and it's been amazing that you are the awful experience of it. I think when you see a play that really moves you, sometimes it, it is a private experience, getting back to that original sort of quote or question, and you just mm. maybe don't want to talk to people about it. You just want to sort of go mull it over for a week or something. I remember the first play that did that to me was Henry IV because of the sword fighting, and they actually like chunked up a chunk of the stage and it flew into the audience. And I was like, mm. this is real. This is really, it was so exciting to me. It did, it just changed my life. And so you hope that, you can keep the, you can keep having those experiences mm. you know to be able to experience awe i think is what keeps us young so i mm. hope that we get to do that for people of all ages the whole show must go on thing i think comes back to that everyone being so emotionally invested in in um shows going on regardless of what's happening
And that was the biggest travesty about COVID was that there was mm-hmm. nothing any of us could do. Mm. We, if we, if we could have stood arm in arm as creatives and fought COVID, I think we would have done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, Dana, your final thought before we move on. Um, I just, I, I think that, I think the joy of being emotionally invested. Uh, is sort of what we're all fighting for. It's it's why we do what we do, whether we're on stage or backstage or in the audience. That's that's the reason to to do theater, to see theater, is because you're hoping for that emotionally emotional investment. Cole, another quote with Sir Ian McKellen commenting that theaters are mollycoddling audience with warning signs. How essential do you think warning signs or trigger warnings are to a production? I don't call them trigger warnings. I use content disclosure, content notice. Mm. Um, so I think using that, I think trigger, especially right now, is such a buzzword. Yeah. And I think when people see the word trigger, they automatically go into it thinking they have to be upset about something. So I like using content notice or content disclosure, something along those lines. Um, but I think it gives people an opportunity to uh, be prepared. Maybe, you know, maybe some people aren't ready to see something that is going to be on stage but i also think um you know we want to respect those people that may not be ready and we don't want them to go into something and then maybe have to leave or they yeah. um you know get upset that they weren't prepared for the content if it was especially heavy or just something they weren't ready to see but then i think using the phrase like content disclosure or content notice um using for a phrase like that it leaves it so if people do want to go into something and be surprised they don't have to like see trigger and then immediately have to read what it is they say yeah. content notice or you know you put a content notice on the website instead of maybe on the front of the of the playbill yeah yeah i guess you know that gives patrons the opportunity to go in blind if they want to go in blind mm. um so i think you know i that's why i prefer the that phrase um myself and one other thing i just thought of too is like i'm thinking about myself i'm i've been writing for five years barely Nobody knows who I am if they see one if they see that. We know who you are, Cole. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. But like you know, if your your average person isn't may not recognize my name, they're not going to know what my play's about, and it may not be easily Googleable. Googleable, going to start that trend now. Um, Hashtag hashtag Googleable. (laughs) Googleable, yeah, let's get it going. Um, you know, I think having content a content notice on a play like mine where the writer's relatively unknown is going to be really helpful as well. If mm. they can't find the information about the play, then they're going to, they're going to have to go in blind regardless if they want to or not. So I think, you know, it's important at every level, but especially with new work so people can, you know, be a hundred percent prepared for what they're about to see if they want to be prepared. Mm. I think the, the evolution of the warning sign is interesting because initially it started out as you know warning this play contains strobe lighting um explosions and loud noises so they catered to the the sen- sensory um element of the audience and then it evolved further into contains you know violence nudity uh, certain language and then it's evolved even further and 
you you kind of get to the point where you think, well, how how far does this have to evolve? Because as as Dana said in her uh, previous question, talking about religion and politics, do you like if if you take a play to a certain country and there's different religions involved, do you then have to put a warning notice because it contains references to a certain religion? It's yeah. I mean, you could you could fill your like inner the inner page of your program with with warnings if you were so inclined. I, that's a fascinating um, situation, and I think it depends on, like, if you were taking your play to another country, um, that's one thing. Um, if if another country is producing your play um, in their in their country, um, that's a, I mean, I think it it actually falls to them to determine like how much their audience needs to know, and I think that actually um, regionally, like here in the United States. Um, is relevant but yeah i think that um you know where you take the play um it, it does you know reflect you know, it, you know the values you don't want to um you know um especially in highly pop populated um for instance muslim areas you don't mm. you know you want to be very like if your play is representing islam in some way you know yeah. you want to make sure that there is that that the community is aware of that um mm. but uh, i i think uh, the big question is you know there's a difference between a, a content warning and a spoiler content warning like on the on the npx on the new play exchange it's really great to have it right there so someone knows yeah. what they're going to be reading in production um yeah you you don't want it splashed all over the poster it's it separates the two between kind of what is health and safety and what is as cole's described a content warning because yeah. so health yeah. and safety is stuff like strobe lighting and explosions as yeah. you said smoking because it can physically yeah. affect your audience whereas it's, it, mm. yeah it's the, the difference is is we're, we're talking the difference between physical health and safety and um, mental emotional health and safety yes mm. yeah i mean i i have uh mixed feelings about this stuff i teach a course on sort of plays a drama lit course and we just sort of i made it about plays about the family so you start with sort of oedipus and antigone and you go through into some hamlet but then a lot of the 20th century plays are you know pretty heavy and when i had someone in my family get very ill and then die i i, I couldn't read the plays for my class it was so hard it was it was just like sandpaper on an open wound and I just told the English department, let me teach poetry, let me do whatever for the next few years. And now I can teach it again. So I'm sort of very aware of it. And I do warn students. Um, at the same time, you know, there there are some students, I agree with Paula, Paula Vogel when she says that theater should make us uncomfortable. And mm. I think there are some students who don't ever want anything to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. I think, I think mm. there are some students who, if someone's mean to a woman, if there is a sexist, dismissive person in the play, they assume the play is sexist. And I yeah. try to sort of say people could be mean and disrespectful to a woman or a person who's a member of a minority group and rotten things could happen and that person could not prevail at the end. And, and the play is not an attack. The play is meant to make you angry and make you mm -hmm. think harder. And mm -hmm. it could still be a feminist play or, or a play in favor of civil rights. And I, and I think there are some folks who just want to be cocooned away from all of that. And some, for some of them, trigger warnings or content warnings can be related to that desire to just not have to have anything unpleasant filtered out and i think that's a danger and there's so much in this country there's a lot of book banning on the right right now but mm. there's some on the left too and so it's, mm. it's, all, it's all a very tricky debate i think absolutely i wonder though as a playwright um what you guys think about 
is that, is it the producer's responsibility or is it our responsibility as writers? I to put those warnings in. I, I've had um, inquiries from schools uh, about a couple of productions and I had one quite recently and I mean the, the play would have suited a youth group perfectly fine but I did say to her in the email just to warn you there's a little bit of kind of dodgy language not horrendous but dodgy and I said if you want to take it out that's absolutely fine I have no issue with that because you know these are school kids. You don't necessarily want to encourage them to swear. Um, <laughs> but then, like Scott said earlier, each region, each you know city, each theater, the audience is going to be extremely different. So they may have different content notices or um, disclosures that they need for their community. So that's not... Hmm. I, I may want them to be noticed as something that they don't really care about but there may be something that I don't even think about adding that they want their communities to know about so I think if it's really heavy like sexual assault suicide then I'm gonna do that myself but outside of that I typically will leave it blank and let you know let whoever is producing make that final decision if they feel like their community needs one I think if a producer or director has gone digging into the bowels of new play exchange for a play then they will find whatever treasure they find. If they find a piece of treasure and they know what that's about, then it is their responsibility. Then it then becomes their responsibility to reveal or not reveal to their audience as they see fit. I agree with that completely. I think, yes, I think if there's a tough subject matter as the writer, you can definitely put that in your description. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think it's the responsibility of the of the producing entity for sure. Cole, your final thought. This was a great discussion. I feel like <laughs> just hearing everybody's comments and like different experiences with it. I mean, I think it just kind of showcases, I think it does showcase the importance of it, but also mm-hmm. the importance of the conversation around it. Because um, and like Judy mentioned, there may be some instances where maybe some people are looking for that because they just don't want that, mm-hmm. but not for the right reasons. So I think, you know, I think this shows that there's a lot of different perspectives and I don't, I think it shows that we haven't found the exact right answer yet, which I think is the most exciting part about this conversation is that we don't know what the exact answer is, but that means that we get to keep exploring and trying new things until we find it, which I think is really exciting, especially with theater. So I think that's where I'll leave it for now. Judy. What yes. do you think of the growing popularity of pay what you can productions in theatre and with the cuts in the funding for the arts, at least I know over here, I don't have as intimate detail over in the US. Uh, do you see it growing further? In terms of funding for the arts, uh, I don't know that there's more to cut in America. There's there's no funding for the arts in, in America. Uh, hasn't been for years. So I just, I, 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 I mean, prices are up, but prices are up for everything. It's a it's a tough time. I mean, and then we're talking about we we were talking earlier about COVID. Uh, theater has not fully come back from that, and I so think theaters are trying to. I understand theaters trying to be accessible to the public. I I understand them trying to find ways to um to fill the house. And I just think, you know, there there are so few theaters producing new work. I mean, it's such a difficult thing, especially with new work. People can fill the theater if they're putting on Annie or Arsenic and Old Lace or, you know, they're doing the 
the the Adams Family musical or something. But if it's if it's new work, how did they break even? You know, can they pay the actors? Can they pay the playwrights? I just think we should all get angry at the government and <laughs> protest them and write letters. I mean, I and 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 just create a, a public nuisance and just demand more funding for the arts to lower ticket prices and compensate you know artists and and all the rest of it often getting mad at at the at the small theaters and they're doing it yeah. for the love of, mm -hmm. of what they're doing so the play that i'm producing right now uh in los angeles we uh are in our second week of a four-week run and uh i changed all of the tickets to pay what you will pay what you want pay what you will whatever yeah. it is mm -hmm. i don't you can't uh but will um and uh and we did that last weekend and our numbers went up immediately, right? So the question was, what do you want? You want you want to break even, which we won't do. This is a, a small theater in Los Angeles. We are definitely not gonna make our nut, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a certain percentage as a producer of what you wanna get back, or do we want butts and seats? And so I decided that was my priority was was live human beings experiencing live theater that was that was more important mm -hmm. to me uh, for yeah. this production and Absolutely. i will say that what has been really exciting to see is um the the shift in the audience right so mm -hmm. that our our demographically age um dropped a little bit and we got more young people coming to see theater we had more first-time people to our space um which is incredible. And so what you want to, what you hope is that you can retain those, that audience, that they'll come see the next thing now, that this was exciting and they'll see the next thing. I am a firm believer in pay what you will, um, just because, you know, I've been there. I, I've been in a position where I didn't have 20 bucks to go see somebody's play and mm -hmm. had to get a comp or had to scrounge for a twofer. I don't want people to do that. I want them to, if you're inspired to give me your 20 bucks, give it to me. If you only have five, I'll take that five. But mostly I want your butt in my seat. Absolutely. Just bouncing right off that, like totally agree. And like, I, that's why I, lo I love the pay what you can because it makes theater more accessible. Yeah. And like, I can think of, um, when I was an undergrad, I didn't have a full-time job. So what, like the free time that I had, you know, I, I was always looking for free activities or like things that I didn't have to pay an arm and a leg for. And like the shows that I did go to see, you know, I was picking the ones I really wanted to because I knew I had to pay, you know, a lot more to go see them. Because I, I always felt that uh, uh, theater is something that everyone should be paid to do, but no one should necessarily have to pay to see it you should just be able to go and that's a terrible business model it is not a tenant at least certainly not in this country but a, a friend of mine once said um um i think theater is something you should pay for after you see the show and it's just <laughs> like yeah do i how much money do i want to give you know it's like a tip uh, but um but yeah i i just um i, I mean I, I i love the the pay what you will models pay, pay what you can is always tricky language uh, to me because it feels so um, it feels very judgmental because if you don't have any money it's just like okay well here I can only pay you five dollars um, and then if you actually do have like um, you know a, a reasonable amount of money and it's just like oh pay what I can well I can give you a hundred dollars um, but it's just um, but now I feel guilted into it but like I love the pay what you will I certainly understand the argument for for not having fees but I, then I, I think some people think that if we shut down all the theaters that, that say we're having a new work theater 
a new work festival and we're charging a fee that there'd be all these wonderful no fee festivals and i think it's possible there wouldn't be i think what you get is people just say only people in this one county in arkansas can submit <laughs> or you have to write a new play and include you know a pigeon uh, a macrame you know t-shirt uh, you, you know they set things and you have to write a specific new work or the ad is or or the the opportunity is only visible behind a paywall or they say you don't have to pay up front, but if we submit your work, you have to pay $100 or you have to self-produce. I mean, those are kind of the options out there. And submission fees, as obnoxious as they are for some people, that might be less obnoxious than some of these. Again, I'm in Nashville. I can't produce in New York at this time. At other times in my life, I live in New York. And, and, and so it's just, you know, again, I just think we should all get angry at the government and yell at them. We shouldn't yeah. be all yeah. attacking each other. Yeah. Because there yeah. are certainly scams out there out to exploit playwrights. They they charge fees and the festival yeah. never happens or they just produce themselves and their friends. But there are also small theaters producing occasionally new full-length plays, you know, and wading through hundreds of submissions and trying to keep the lights on in their theater. And it, it, I'm just sort of say, if you think the theaters are all just making, getting rich doing this, let's <laughs> keep our budget for producing a new work festival. <laughs> Um, there's a theater festival out here that uh, has a submission fee. It's a, a summer playwrights festival. I know one of you had a play in it uh, this past summer. Um, it's a great company and that is their biggest fundraiser of the year. And they that's how they say it. We're gonna do this thing and this is what the submission fee is and this is our fundraiser. Uh, for the year. So like theater companies like that, submission opportunities like that, I am much more likely to like to pay a yeah. submission fee or something like that, just to support companies and 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 let them produce anything, you know, especially mm. new work um, mm. by all means, especially world premiere stuff. Um, if my if my $10 whatever is going to help you do this, then fine, whatever. I don't that I don't mind. It's the ones that that are that are shady or they're not exactly saying, you know, what that fee goes to. They're not paying their readers. They're not paying their, you know, actors. They're not playing their playwrights. Uh, those are the ones I, I refuse to do. Okay, uh, Judy, final thought. I, yeah, theaters, there, there should be accessible um, tickets. Uh, there should be, it should be easier for acting students and playwriting students and people associated with theaters to get cheap tickets, people who are involved in the theater world. There should be special ways where they sort of, people who want to go see a lot of theater, like you were talking about, Cole, should should be able to, and we, we should all just be smarter and think more about how to do it, I think. Okay. Final question. Uh, Scott, with an increase in productions of an absurd and experimental nature, do you think the linear storylines of classic theatre are becoming more obsolete? Um, short answer, um, no, regardless of how much the theatre world is trying, but no, I don't. Um, if Shakespeare and Ibsen and um, just all the classical, uh, all, all the pl playwrights from before, like, like, well, even like before 1950, from 1950 back to the Greeks are still around. I don't think they have to, you know, too much to really worry about from the avant-garde movement. Um, and I think uh, there, there's a, one of my favorite quotes um, uh, is by um, a French writer, uh, Paul uh, Valéry, I believe. I, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Um, but his uh, great quote is, everything changes except the avant-garde. 
and it's always like um like every time i i see something that is like new and daring and just this groundbreaking uh vision that has never been done before it's the hundredth time i've seen it and <laughs> um and it's it just um and i think what really really matters um whether it's you know um uh, a faithful um, um, production of a classical play, or an adaptation, or um, uh, or, or uh, something like new and absurd, or, or absurdist, or or, or 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 bizarre, is you know it, it comes it always comes down to the same thing: Does this individual production work? It really just depends on whether or not it works, and I think that the um, you know it, it, it's not great for the community to pit one style against the other mm -hmm. um uh, uh, because um you know you you can do an absolutely faithful production of anything and it will be a crushing bore and that doesn't mean faithful productions are boring it just means that you know this one didn't work um i i've actually um when i ran i ran a theater company devoted to um new plays um and we had a classical theater wing because I personally felt it was important to, um, you know, you know, for us to create new things to know where we're coming from. There's a lot of different ways you can approach classical theater, and you can adapt it. You can build plays around it, um, and, and and you can you can be faithful to it, and it's going to be good or bad based on its own merits, and it's going to be good or bad based on the merits of the of how you build that performance. It's, it's trusting mm. the audience to realize they don't necessarily need one, two, three, yeah. four, end anymore. Like, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, they're going to get given one M, a quarter, seven, E, five. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they, at the same time, they don't necessarily need everything to be in a neat row and everything to be tied up in a bow. At least that's my perspective on it. Anyway, yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. And it, 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 it's like when you're like learning fundamentals of playwriting and fundamentals of dramaturgy and things like that. Mm. Um, I mean, those are those are great building blocks, and I think it's important to know the rules um, so you can build on them or break them. You need to kind of like know where you're coming from and, and like the basics of of your art form because if yeah. you want to go completely, you know, off the wall. Um, you know, it, it, you you have a you have a compass, and the audience has a compass. So yeah. they so if you're going over over the edge, over over that waterfall, they can follow you. But I did want to say, I think that the the trend of immersive and and experimental and uh, whatever the buzzwords that you want to use, um, basically, it's it's ways to engage an audience. Which I mm. think if you are doing theater at all uh, in the last five years, two years, six months, you know, is is almost an impossible feat. It's Sisyphusian, if you will. And so how do we how do we make it an event? Right. Mm -hmm. How do we make it? Because my uh, my husband works for the uh, L.A. Philharmonic and the Hollywood Bowl. They have a 17000 seat uh venue and they sell out all the time so why are people going to the hollywood bowl why and why can't i get you know 51 butts in my theater so how do you engage how do you make it immersive how do you make it exciting yeah. you have to make it an event and i'm hopeful that the pendulum will swing back and we can all do our snick and old lace again um but i doubt it and so i think that um you can do a a, a classic production you can write a you know a three-act structure with 
seven characters, but you have to find a way for that to be exciting for an audience because we can't do this in a vacuum. We depend on them. We need them just as much as they need us. And so how do we engage? But then again, I, I think it's very much, if you want to tell the audience a play with a story, then that's fine, but you need to draw them in to the story and otherwise they'll, they'll never get invested and they'll never think you know this this kind of relates to me I used to say when, when, when i was a bit more um fundamentalist about these things uh, uh, um uh, avant-garde is french for pretentious <laughs> and it, it's just um and it, it really because um but like here in new york city there there is a very specific dividing line um 14th street and if you're seeing theater above 14th <laughs> Street, you know what I mean. If you're seeing theater above, above 14th Street, that is going to have a beginning, middle, and end. They may not be in that order, but they're going to have a beginning, middle, and end. They're going to have characters you can understand. It's going to be human. It's going to be it, that. It's going to be very traditional, even if it's a little off the wall. And below 14th Street, if your narrative makes sense, and if one bit of dialogue follows another, and you can connect them, well, that's darling. That's so, so pedestrian. Isn't it great that you're doing things in the same boring way? Everyone has always done them. And there's, there, in both ends, there's a bit of, you know, there's, there are noses in the air on both sides of that dividing line. Like experimental, that, it's, it's a very broad amorphous term. It's like art or theater. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just like art. If someone did it and you're watching it, technically that's art. There's no, there, there's nothing that says it has to be good. Um, if it's theater, okay, someone's doing something and you're watching them, that's theater. Um, if it's exper if it's uh, experimental, if you're taking if you're taking the thing or you're departing from the thing that is traditional, that is experimental. Whatever the thing is um, mm -hmm. in theater, and it's just it really is that broad. Absurdist is very specific. People think, oh, this mm -hmm. is absurdist, and I'm like, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you did nothing that was absurdist, but it was weird, and I had fun, or I didn't, yeah. and I but Ab yeah Ab absurdism is studied weird is natural yes yeah yeah exactly i really like your point about how like this is how you described experimental there and like mm. that's how i've been feeling i've been kind of falling i feel like i do i write a lot of horror no like, <laughs> what and like at <laughs> all because like i think it's so cool and i want to see more of it on stage but like you know a big part of the experiment with that it's i may be writing a linear storyline but how do you you know bring michael myers on stage and without you know hollywood budget or something i've been trying to do is i love found footage movies like the blair witch project how do i bring that and how do i put that on stage and how do i replicate it mm. like well i'm writing a linear story but how do i bring something that's done on film and that's the experiment and yeah. like, crossfades 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 I know. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. i've been so like i really liked how you explained that because i feel like that's kind of where i fall with a lot of my stuff so mm. when, like, when i was looking at this question earlier i didn't know like i don't think linear theater's gone because i feel like that's where i, I fall but also i feel like i try to do things that other i feel like i try to write stories or i come up with ideas that other people don't do is that experimental mm. or is that just a new yeah layer of sure, in your story i would say it's it's very much in in manner of uh perspective because say i write stories that go from start to finish but i also write stories where the characters are all human and i write stories where the characters are all bottles on of drink on top of a fridge 
Um, and yet they are both linear storylines, but they are very different in the way that characters are, air quotes, traditionally meant to appear. Genre bias. Um, mm. there's, such a, there's so much genre bias in the theatre. Um, like, like uh, I, I, I know someone who was like, well, you know, it's great that you've written science fiction for the stage, but science fiction does not work on stage. I was like, you are mistaken. There's an oh, entire God, yeah. movement of geek theater about science fiction on stage that I have just, you know, discovered. Not, <laughs> have you not, have not, you heard of a little thing sure, called War of the Worlds? <laughs> War of the Worlds, R-U-R. I mean, science fiction has gone back, yeah, and it's just, but it's like, I think, you know, like space opera is not something that works on stage very well no you can do it um you know you can you you can do literally anything with two chairs and it, it's um and and um and the question that annoys me most is like why didn't you write this as a screenplay and mm -hmm. i'm like well because i wanted people to see it that's mm -hmm. the first reason but also it's just because you know uh you know, I grew up, you know, being told you can do anything on a stage. This, you know, the stage is, you know, there are not, there are no limits to what you can do on a stage. Yeah. And then I do this thing and it's just like, not that the scenes are too short. And I'm like, there are fewer scenes in this than in Antony and Cleopatra. I checked is mm -hmm. Antony and Cleopatra screenplay. It has a right. lot of set yeah. setting rather there's no set and it's just i'm like shakespeare was doing this i don't know why it's like you know it's not just reserved I, i'm not saying i'm shakespeare i'm like i don't know why the technique is just reserved for like this one guy at the globe i think a zen ideal is a play like night mother where you just have two women an older woman and a middle-aged woman and they're just on one set and it, it unfolds in real time and they're having a conversation and and it's compelling enough that you just watch it in real time. There isn't even an intermission and it holds your interest. Mm -hmm. And when I teach playwriting, screenwriting, I do encourage because stu students, because we see so many more movies than we see plays. I do say, put two people in one room with two chairs, have them sit in the chairs. Chairs aren't like necessarily representing a car. I mean, I also like movies like how I learned, you know, uh, plays like how I learned to drive where they're sitting there and they're in the car, in, 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 the, in the folding chairs and that, that represents a car. But I sort of say at first, just put them two people in a room and let them have a conversation, especially yeah. if you're writing a short play, you know, um, because people write plays where two people are walking through the mall and someone goes into a store and shoplifts something and the other person says, I can't believe you did that. And they go down the escalator and they wander into the cinemaplex. And I'm like, how would you stage it? And they just aren't thinking like a play. So so there is some value into sort of. Mm -hmm. When, when you're when you're sort of showing students the difference and you're saying with a play you can have long scenes and really explore characters in depth and a relationship in depth there is some value in doing that in terms of this non-linear stuff i mean i have a play that uh, one full-length play that's sort of non-linear most of my plays are pretty linear i mean things like death of a salesman is not linear because you know uh i mean nope. he keeps willie loman keeps wandering into his sort of delusions about what was happening in 1928 or just before the stock market crash it's still pretty canon so experiment i mean the, 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 we're talking about a bunch of different things here you know i I, yeah. I i saw one production of king lear i think i would think it was not just experimental it was absurdist i was visiting i was in england at the time i was visiting cambridge and it was the most exciting thing i've ever seen and i'm not a real experimental theater person the guy playing lear came up to me and put something in my hand an imaginary object it was the most thrilling moment i don't know if he gave me coins or i don't remember what he gave me but it was just mm -hmm. so exciting and it just really underscored that lear is just a bonkers play it's one of those shakespeare plays that's just out there and a really experimental production 
just distilled that. So, I mean, I think there's a, a way to make it exciting and to do it badly. I write some science fiction plays. I write mysteries, but I don't want them just to be about whodunit. I want it to be a real play that's more than just the whodunit. You know, and, and I think you can have artistic value and it, it doesn't just have to be like sort of solving a puzzle. I, I think I think there's a, a good way and a rotten way to do just about anything in theater. You can fiddle and play about with stuff. But I think the key element, regardless of whether it's linear, absurd, experimental or anything else, is you need to draw your audience in because you lose your audience. You've not got a play as far as I'm concerned. I could be wrong. but hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, final thoughts, Scott. I think um, I don't think linear storytelling is in any danger, and I don't think nonlinear storytelling is in any danger. I think that we, um, I, I think it's always about what the playwright needs to do to tell their story, mm -hmm. and if that's a straight line, if that's one room, if that's you know two characters, if that's um, you know a dozen characters you're doubling up, um, you know you 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 you've got your you've got your dumbwaiter and you've got you know your Coriolanus, and you can go go to town. And I think that there's um, I think there's a lot of room for, for a whole lot of imagination. Final question of the evening. Describe a moment when you found yourself thinking, this is why I love theatre. And we'll start with Dana. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I, I love theatre. Theatre is my favourite thing. Uh, it is my longest relationship. It is my uh, my best friend. It is my, my frenemy sometimes. Um, but I am, and, and the reason is because I'm frequently thinking, this is why I love theatre. Oh, this is why I love theatre. And um, the most recent example of that for me is I run a new play development program here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we culminate after nine months with a first look reading series. Mm -hmm. And we, one of the writers wrote this play uh, that I just adore. And um, in the audience were at least 10 people who had never seen a play before. They'd, you know, they, they've seen television, they've seen film, but these were, these were, these were people in their thirties that had never, ever had an experience, a theatrical experience at all. And they were awestruck right? <laughs> They're holding on to each other. They're pounding on each other when stuff was happening. They were vocal. They were verbal. They were excited. And watching them watch this reading, just a reading, a stage reading of this brand new play and get that excited and that engaged, that is why I love theater. Scott? There, there are a couple of moments that uh, spring to mind. Um, uh, as an audience member, um, I saw a production, uh, and I, I talk about this one a lot, uh, a, a production called The Seven Streams of the River Ota by um, a Canadian auteur, uh, I, I, and I will, I, one of these days I will learn how to pronounce his name. It's either Robert Lepage or Robert Lepage. But, um, but it's, uh, and his company at the time, Ex Machina. Um, the Seven Streams of the River Ota was literally like seven one-act plays, all of which ran about an hour um, and it was told over two nights. It was a seven and a half hour uh, production. And not only were there seven one act plays, but the whole, the whole shebang had a prologue and an epilogue. Okay. Mm. But um, there was, um, it was a, a wonderful example about how you can take every theatrical convention and device and technique and throw it against the wall and put it on stage and still do it in service of telling 
several stories that also told a panoramic uh, unifying story. Mm -hmm. And the um, there's one, it, it took place between um, 1945 and 1995. And there was a section that was, um, that was taking place. Um, uh, it was a flashback, a uh, long flashback play in, um, in a concentration camp. And the entire thing is, um, is staged on this sort of pagoda-like facade. This is taking place in a, in a, a, a Nazi concentration camp. And there were frequently screens that came across the front of this pagoda facade. This one time they brought out, uh, they were clear glass. And the backdrop of, uh, on this facade was uh, mirrors. And it was like, okay, we're looking through glass and we see the mirrors. And then the concentration camp was being liberated, was being evacuated. And then people started crossing between the, the, front, um, the front glass and the mirrors. And what we realized then is that the front glass was actually a two-way mirror. And we were looking through it and the people walking through were infinitely reflected. So each time one or two people would walk through, it was like we were watching literally thousands of people, mm -hmm. hundreds and thousands of people walking across this stage. And it was like our minds just all exploded because we were watching hundreds of people in the concentration camp being evacuated right before us on stage with like a cast of like a dozen people. This simple, simple trick told this amazing, amazing story. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, oh my God, this is why I love theater. Uh, Judy. When I was a kid, my parents, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, but we go over the bridge to see theater. They take me to Shakespeare in the Park. They take me to everything like Cat in the Hot Tin Roof when I was like seven. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, no idea. But uh, but I, I really remember they took me to a, a collection of Sam Shepard plays, I think in the 70s. And one of them um, is a play called Killer's Head. And we didn't even make it into the theater yet before you got into the theater in the lobby they had a, it's 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 about a guy in an electric chair and he's waiting for them to kill him and he's just thinking about things he cares about like horses and and feeding the horses and that horse so if you put it together with that one that you know you'll have a foal that that'll be a racer and and it was just this you know young black man uh, with a i think blindfolded with like tin foil are supposed to be the things holding him to the chair just sweating bullets and it just we staggered into the theater i barely remember any of the plays after that but it just absolutely galvanized me. So then years later, when I had a chance living in the village to see uh, True West, the Sam Shepard play True West, and it just knocked me into next week. I mean, so that a huge influence on me. So those moments, and then I think directing the first, I directed the first play of mine that got produced, an hour long play in New York and that with, with the cast that I had chosen and they, they were wonderful. And so those are some, some moments that come to mind. <laughs> and finally, Cole. Uh, there's two big ones that really pop up. Uh, the first one, very recently, um, you know, gr growing up, I had a lot of struggle with my sexuality and kind of accepting that part of myself. And that's something that I still struggle with. But recently, for the first time, I wrote a play about it, um, mm -hmm. where it was kind of like a list of like things I hated as a kid. But then it transitioned into things I hated about myself as a kid and mainly dealing with my sexuality and I hesitantly released it and the response I got from it about that you know just that community that was a big moment like this is why I love doing what I do because I'm able to accept myself and be myself and people are going to accept that as well 
and I don't have to feel bad about being myself. So that was a big one. And then the second one, which I think this is the most impactful moment for me, which also is the moment I always go back to for this is how I know I'm doing what I was meant to do. It was um a not even a, a few months after I started writing, maybe about six, seven months. And it was my first play that I ever wrote that was getting put on at my university for a stage reading called Type 1. And it's about my experience is a type one diabetic and this is also therapeutic because I was diagnosed very recently um at, before I started writing so this is like a very new experience for me as well um so you know just I put a lot of heart and emotion into this play and um it's about somebody not being able to afford their insulin and I'm sitting there and I'm watching it and I'm just like this is my first time seeing anything I've written put on mm. so I'm just like bright bright you know huge smile I'm in the front row like dead center watching and these are my friends doing it too two of my friends um who are both in my grade so I was just like loving it and um at one point about halfway through it was only like an eight minute script too so it was very quick at one point I turned and there's this young woman about my age sitting next to me a couple rows over or a couple seats over and she was just bawling her eyes out. And like, I never saw her again. I never had a chance to talk to her. She probably didn't know I wrote it, but like, I don't know who this woman was, but she, just like seeing somebody's reaction, seeing that reaction to like that story, that experience that I wanted people to learn about, like I knew, like I knew this is what I was meant to do. And I knew that that's why I loved theater. Okay, well, we are just about out of time. Guys, thank you so much for being here. This has been an utterly amazing conversation. I literally cannot thank you enough. So thank you for coming along and talking to me because otherwise I'd be very lonely. <laughs> thanks for asking us. This was lovely. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks for having us. And that is it for this episode of The Panel Presents. I really hope you enjoyed the wonderful chat I've had with my four panellists today. And you can join us again in 2024 where we'll have many, many more. Of course, we still have plenty to come before the end of the year, including our final episode of season two of Theatrical Shenanigans with The Little Christmas Tree by Dana Hall. Then on Christmas Eve, we have a full-length special for you in the form of A Christmas Carol, but not as you know it. So I hope you can join us for both of those. In the meantime, though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams. This is Theatrical Shenanigans. Bring down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join me next time. Theatrical Shenanigans part of an RFW Scripts production. Found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody. 